Good evening, everybody. We're going to do a um, 16-week series on who is Jesus. The first eight weeks, we are going to look at why should we trust Jesus. And on each of the weeks, we're going to look at an episode uh, of, of a person or people encountering Jesus. And so the first eight weeks, why should we trust Jesus? The second eight weeks, why don't we trust Jesus? And so those interactions are going to be around people that uh, were offended by him or he was confronting. And so it's going to be, it's going to be a great series. So we look here at this um, wedding in the city of Cana. So there's the, we're going to first set the scene here. It's a wedding celebration in this little town of, of Cana. And Cana was a uh, kind of maybe a suburb of Nazareth, we would understand it as. Jesus' mother is there. She seems to have some role in the organization or management of the wedding. Jesus is there along with his disciples, which would have only numbered five. This is the first um, recorded miracle of Jesus in his public ministry. He hadn't even collected all of his disciples yet. And so it's Jesus, his five, five of the disciples, Jesus' mother, and obviously a big crowd of people coming to celebrate a wedding. Now, it's helpful to understand the context and the culture of what weddings would have been back then. So they were massive celebrations that lasted about a week. And, so, and, it, and it wasn't just the family and close friends. It usually involved the entire village. The groom and his family would host the wedding, um, and the, the whole village would come. Obviously, all the family and friends as well, but the whole village would come. And back then, and in more traditional cultures now, they had a, a higher view of the role of the family, the role of households, in the strength of overall society. So if the families were solid and strong, that meant that the, the, the community was going to be strong, the military was going to be strong, every aspect of community life would be strong if the, if the households and families were strong. And so weddings were um, the celebrations that didn't just bring a, a man and a woman together and start a new family, it, it brought families together, brought communities together. And so the weddings were very important. And in these celebrations, these week-long celebrations, the food and wine were the critical pieces, which, and, and the wine was like the most important feature. So here you have a wedding, and they've run out of wine. So this was a huge social faux pas. You don't run out of wine at a wedding celebration. In fact, um, it, would, it would bring shame upon, especially the groom and his family, because they were responsible for it. It would bring shame upon the, the couple, bring shame upon the families. And some scholars even report that the, the, the shame associated with it and the loss of reputation associated with running out of wine could even evoke people to uh, initiate lawsuits because their reputations would be weakened uh, in the community, and the shadow of that shame could last uh, for years. And so we have a different way of, of anticipating weddings, but you have to recognize that this is a highly anticipated event, just like weddings are in our culture. Um, the expectations are high, but not just for the bride and the groom, but for the whole village. The whole village is going to have a party. 
And so the wine runs out. Jesus' mom comes and says, hey, Jesus, they have run out of wine. The text doesn't say what she expected Jesus to do. But he replies, woman, what does this have to do with me? Why are you asking me to help out? What responsibility do I have to solve this problem? And the mom doesn't reply. It seems like Jesus' response is, I mean, woman, what does this have to do with me? So it sounds curt, and it, and it is. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. So why was Jesus' response kind of curt towards his mother? And what did he mean by this statement? So these are the questions that we're going to kind of explore as we unfold this passage. Well, then Jesus performs a miracle. He sees six stone water jars that are there. These stone water jars were used for Jewish rites of purification found in the, the law of Moses. So we just got done in the church talking about the Pentateuch and all the sacrifices and rituals that they would have to make uh, in order to um, enter into God's presence and receive his forgiveness. So Jesus sees these stone purification jars. Each of these jars... Um, was enough so that all six would be about 120 to 150 gallons of wine. That's 600 to 750 bottles of wine. Well, he tells the servants to fill these stone jars up. They fill it to the brim with water. And Jesus tells the servants, go take some of that and give it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast tastes it, and he doesn't taste water. He tastes what was probably the best wine ever produced by a human being in the history of the world. And then he says, then he goes to the groom, and he says, usually the bad wine is served at the end after everybody has drunk too much, drank too much, drank too much. Thanks, Nathan. Wasn't expecting that from you, but that's good. <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, I was looking for my wife, the editor, but I didn't see her. Um, you've saved the best wine till the end. And that is John's main point. The statement that the master of the feast makes to the groom is the main point. You have saved the best to the end. So what is John's message here? This is John in, in writing his gospel. So there's three other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the only one of the gospels that tells this story. So why did John include it? Why was it at the beginning? And what was Jesus communicating in performing this miracle at this wedding feast? So those, that's what we want to look at. So the first thing the participants, so the people that knew were the servants, the disciples, obviously Jesus. Um, those are, that's all who knew, but the original readers of this text would have understood first that this was a religious message that Jesus was sending. So again, the law of Moses had a lot of rituals and rites and ceremonies that involved purification. The purification was needed in order for them, these, these rituals were needed in order for them to uh, enter into the presence of God. So the priests would have to go through washings, 
with water from these types of purification jars. And, and so drawing near to God required purification and, and forgiveness. The way God worked to bring forgiveness of sins to the nation was also part of these purification rites. And it gave the participants, so if you went through some washing ceremony, there was a recognition that you were not clean enough to enter into God's presence. Not physically, but, but morally and spiritually. And so these purification rites would give the participants a sense of, okay, God told us to do this, and by doing this, we could enter into his presence. Their, their consciences needed something to give them a sense that they had purified themselves before going into God's presence and, and receiving the forgiveness that God provided. And so these things were practiced repeatedly throughout the, the weeks and months and years for the nation of Israel. And so the stone jars represent this system, this system of purifying themselves so that they could enter into God's presence and experience his forgiveness. So Jesus, in, in doing what Jesus did, he actually profaned them. He made them unusable for these ceremonies anymore. They couldn't use them for purification anymore for in, these, in, these, in this system. But what Jesus does with them is that he does something and it, it improves their use. Water was put into the jars and the best wine in the history of the world was brought out. And the point of this, of this message here from a religious standpoint is that what was first is not as good. The inferior was in the past. The superior has come. What was before failed. What was before Jesus failed. And so what this metaphor of Jesus turning the water into wine during this wedding celebration, using those purification jars, what it, what the metaphor is communicating what the New Testament writers would later say, what came before in the, old, in the, in the Mosaic law failed. Jesus is better. The new and perfect way now of entering into God's presence and receiving God's forgiveness is through Jesus Christ. So that's the religious message. Well, we have to ask ourselves, well, what was, what was Jesus purifying? What was he making better? He made the water better. He made the jars better. But what was, he, what was going on in the actual wedding celebration that he made better? So I think there's at least three things. There's, first of all, there's the celebration itself. Okay, so... If the, if, the wine, if, the, if the whole celebration and all of the participants would have experienced the wine running out, the party would have stopped. Everybody would have gone home. Shame would have come upon the bride and the groom and their families and the master of the feast. It would have been a disaster. Now, we don't know, okay, we know that Jesus' mother and, and probably the, the, and the master of the feast and maybe a few other people knew that the wine had run out. But the, but the whole celebration didn't. They experienced what would have had to have been more wine than they really needed. 600 to 750 bottles 
of wine. I have gone to a lot of weddings in my history as a pastor, officiated a lot of weddings, well over 100. I have never seen a celebration, and I've been a part of some big weddings, I have never seen a celebration with 600 bottles of wine, 600 bottles of anything. So Jesus not only provided something better, he overwhelmingly provided something better for the entire group, most of whom didn't even know what was going on. Jesus was also purifying the hosts. So the groom, the groom's family, the master of the feast, the people responsible, Jesus saved them. Saved them from the shame and the embarrassment of the, of the whole village for possibly years to come. And the bride and her family as well. So the bride, if the, if the groom and his family had failed, the bride would be stuck with the fact that she's married to this guy who let the village down. And the shame would have gone to her family. And so the whole celebration, the host, the groom, the family, and the bride and her family, Jesus was working to save them from, from the shame of a failed wedding celebration. This event that was important, again, not just for the bride and the groom, not just for the family, but for the whole village as well, because it communicated that, that we are all together as a community, and we support weddings, we support marriage, because it makes us all stronger. The last thing I think this is saying, this message is saying, and I'm just kind of bringing up three points. I'm sure there's a lot more. But I think that the, what, what Jesus does here at the wedding is saying this. There is a, a, a lesser statement and a greater statement. The lesser one is that Jesus is the true and better master of the feast. He provided wine that enabled the celebration to go on. Jesus is the true and better master of the feast, master of the celebration. This is the first record of a miracle that Jesus puts in. And some scholars believe that the fact that, that John selected this particular story to start out the gospel, it seems unusual. And with all of Jesus' other miracles, most of which were you know, healing blind people, healing lame people, casting out demons, these are much more spectacular, and they were much more public. But here John includes this because what he wants people to know first and foremost is that Jesus knows how to host a celebration. Jesus knows how to throw a party overwhelmingly. Jesus knows how to provide what is best for the celebration and what is most important for the people participating in the celebration. That's what John is trying to show here. At the beginning of all of Jesus' stories that are going to come, this is what John wanted us to understand first and foremost. That's the lesser statement. The greater statement is that Jesus is not only the true and better master of the feast, Jesus is also the true and better groom. The true and better groom. Because the master of the feast, who had some responsibility in the party, goes to the groom who would have purchased the wine. 
And he said, most people save the, serve the best at the beginning and then the poor one at the end because people in their inebriated states wouldn't be able to tell the difference. But you have saved the best until last. And he tells that to the groom. So the groom is ultimately the one that Jesus really saved. Jesus is the better groom. And then that gets us to this statement that Jesus made to his mom. My hour has not yet come. This is an idea that John develops over the course of the gospel. And eventually, he gets to the point in chapter 12 where he says, now my hour has come. And Jesus' hour was his death and his resurrection. And so when his mom comes up and asks him, or tells him, hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine, kind of with the anticipation or expectation of him doing something. Did, did she want him and his disciples to go get more wine? Did she want him to perform a miracle? We, we don't have any idea, but she evidently burdened Jesus to do something and what Jesus understood is that the moment he starts revealing himself, it started a countdown. Not, not to a wedding celebration like this, but to his death. And so what his mom was essentially asking him to do was, it was to start the clock. To start the clock to his death. And we all know, I mean, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified, and he is, and he is sweating blood. It is an extremely stressful moment for Jesus. And his death was on his mind his entire life. As soon as he discovered who he was at some age, would have been prior to 11 or 12 when he was in the temple when his parents went to Jerusalem um, for a Passover celebration. At some point, Jesus came to the understanding as a, as a boy, I'm the Messiah of Israel. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. So when, Ma, when, when, when his mother said that to him, that's what immediately popped in his mind. That's why the answer's kind of curt. Mom, do you know what you're asking me? You're asking me to start the clock to my death. Well, he, he doesn't tell her that he's going to do anything, but he goes ahead and does it. He, he knows that there's an opportunity here and a need. It's not a massive massive, uh, you know, it's, it's, he's not saving any, any lives here yet. He's saving people's honor and reputations. But he still sees it as a need, and so he does something. Now, in the, in the rituals of purification and forgiveness that you see in the law of Moses, lambs were the ultimate sacrifice. An innocent, unblemished lamb was the ultimate sacrifice that they had to um, kill in order to enter into God's presence, to receive his salvation, to receive his forgiveness. And so we see the, the, some of the two of the biggest celebrations or, or rituals or feasts that Israel had. One of them was Passover, and they had to sacrifice an innocent, unblemished lamb and take its blood and paint it over the doorposts 
in order to be saved from the angel of death that was killing all of the firstborn animals and human beings in the nation of Egypt. And so the blood of the lamb saved them. And then there's the Day of Atonement, this one feast, this one day of the year where everybody would fast and they took an unblemished innocent lamb and, they put, and the, priest, the, the, the chief priest would put his hands on the lamb and they would sacrifice that lamb. All of the sins of the nation for that year were put upon that lamb. That lamb was sacrificed. When the prophet John, John the Baptist, saw Jesus Christ for the first time, he said, there is Jesus, the Passover lamb, who saves the world from its sins. Sins bring death. God doesn't bring death. God doesn't kill people. Sin brought about death. And so when Jesus enters into this process of saving the reputations of these people, and really, again, becomes the true and better groom, he is entering into a, a role where he is going to take death upon himself. He is the true and better lamb. He is the true and better sacrifice. So Jesus replaces us in dying, just as he replaced the groom, just as he replaced the master of the feast, just as he replaced the wine. So when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, and then when he's the night before, my hour has come, and then he dies and is resurrected from the dead, that was his hour. And so what we see throughout his life is Jesus substituting himself in our place, he takes that death so that we can have his life. In his life, God destroyed death by resurrecting Jesus Christ from the dead, never to die again. And that's what resurrection means. Risen from the dead, never to die again. And so God conquered death through Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is ultimately doing here in this wedding feast is inviting us as the groom to be his bride. To be his bride. Come to my feast. I'm the master of the feast. Come to my wedding. I am the groom and I am calling all people to be my bride. Everyone is invited. But those who recognize their need for purification those who recognize their need to be washed, those who recognize that they need their consciences cleared, those who recognize their need for forgiveness, all of these things that are wrapped up in this idea of purification, all the things that the lambs would have represented, those who recognize their need for those things ultimately recognize their need for Jesus Christ. Those who want to dwell in the presence of God for eternity. Those who want to have eternal life respond to Jesus' invitation. Just as he was the true and better groom, he's the true and better substitute for our sins. In fact, Jesus then, in the book of Revelation, we see that Jesus is preparing an actual wedding feast for his bride. Revelation chapter 19. He is the groom. 
And the bride is everyone that who has accepted his invitation to be his bride. Everyone who's accepted his substitution of death so that they don't have to die. And it will be the wedding, it will be the best wedding celebration ever. In fact, our weddings that we have around this planet that have been going on for millennia, whatever ways we celebrate weddings, weddings are an image of the greater reality of Christ and his wedding celebration with his bride, those who have believed in him. But why communicate this at a wedding feast? Why communicate this at a wedding feast? Again, why was this his first public miracle? And I've already spoken to this a little bit. But if we ask ourselves the question, is there a more widely and greatly anticipated event in our culture, maybe even in any other culture, in any culture, is there a more widely and greatly anticipated, so the most, most everybody can anticipate it and look forward to it, than a wedding? So here we have in this culture and in traditional places, week-long celebrations. We don't have week-long celebrations, but we spend months and sometimes even years planning for those one-day wedding celebrations, don't we? The average cost of a wedding in America is between twenty dollars and $30,000. So the amount of time spent on planning and the amount of money that is spent on weddings certainly reflects, we may not, again, we may not have a week-long celebration, but what we do invest in terms of time and money certainly reflects that we still put, as a culture, a lot of anticipation and expectations on weddings. Because weddings embody one of the happiest occasions we can experience as people. There's a book that just was published yesterday called The Good Life. And it is a summary of the longest scientific study on happiness that, it has, that exists. The study began in 1938. Okay, so it's over seven decades. And it's and it's led by uh, two doctors out of Harvard, Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz. They're both at Harvard. It's the longest study on happiness. And what they've identified, and there was a series of interviews prior to the book release, what they have found is that there are the two strongest contributors to happiness are, is this. First, if you maintain your physical health as if you were going to live to be 100 years old, the people that do that that they tend to have happier lives. But the second thing, which is much more substantial, is this. If a person has significant, deep, meaningful, and long-lasting relationships, that is the most powerful contributor to happiness that all the science, 70 years of study, has found. And marriage man and a woman coming together, committing themselves to life, really would, should be, ideally, and I think we kind of have this sense within ourselves, this is the ultimate representation, then, of what should make us happy as, as human beings, if the science is correct. I read another study on the decline of happiness in our culture. And what they have found is that loneliness is increasing... There are less friendships, there are less marriages, 
And, all, and obviously, if those two things are happening, there's less sex. And the study says that that is an additional aspect of what makes people happy. Again, marriage epitomizing that dynamic. So what is wrapped up in marriage or in our perceptions of marriage and our perceptions of weddings, the science is affirming all of the anticipation and expectations of happiness that we put into weddings. But the science also affirms what this story tells us. The science of happiness, is, this, and this comes out of a lot of the work from Dan Gilbert, who wrote a book called Stumbling into Happiness, and he's got a number of TED Talks. He says that the science also shows that the visions and expectations that we have about what will make us happy, weddings or riches, our anticipations and beliefs and visions for what's going to make us happy, he says, the science shows that when we obtain those things, we are always disappointed. We are always disappointed. He's got like a 20-minute TED Talk. You should look at Dan Gilbert. It's hilarious. But he just shows you point after point, whatever we think is going to make us happy, oftentimes we don't get it, but oftentimes when we do, we are always disappointed because our experience doesn't match up with our expectations and visions and hopes. I think this, this story about the Cana, wedding in Cana is not just a one-off. It's probably what's common. Something happens to our wedding. Something happens to the actual events. When we expect something great, we expect a great vacation, and it bombs. I remember a wedding that Anna and I went to. Some friends of ours, they got married. There's a lot of anticipation. Uh, the groom, you know, after the wedding, they're having the cake. The groom takes a piece of the cake and shoves it on the, the new bride's face, and she loses it. And she goes and runs into a, a, a shelter at the park that they were at, and nobody saw her for over an hour. <laughs> what a disaster. All right? But I'm sure that we could all tell stories. Maybe our weddings. Maybe our honeymoons. Maybe some vacation. Maybe the person you ended up with. Disappointment. And that, the science is showing, is the reality. So what Jesus is really saying, and why John recorded this, is that, is that Jesus knows what our hearts and our minds and our bodies long for. But Jesus also knows that our experience is never going to match up with those desires and longings and expectations. The happiness that we desire, the longings that we feel for intimacy and belonging and purity and freedom of conscience and celebration and joy, all of these desires that we have that we, that we place in these future things that we hope that to experience or obtain someday, will always disappoint us. And so what Jesus is really saying is that whatever dreams you have, whatever longings you desire, 
the ultimate of which is represented in this wedding celebration. Whatever it is your mind and imagination has for you to be happy, I can fulfill that. I can fulfill that. Because he turned wine, excuse me, because he turned water into wine. And so the, the miracle is not the main point. Because you'd have to ask, well, how do we know that Jesus can do that? Well, because he turned water into wine. He's done it. So that's it. That's the message from the wedding in Cana. So we've got plenty of time here for some Q&A.